Well, would you stand with me as we rise to read God's Word together and turn in your Bibles? I hope you have one on hand. Turn your Bibles to Genesis chapter 31 this morning as we continue on in our ongoing study through the Bible's book of beginnings. We do come today to what is the halfway point in what we could call the gospel according to Jacob. As there's only a few more weeks, Lord willing, until the narrative will shift from its focus on Jacob to his son Joseph. And we come to what is another large text, a large chapter, 55 verses long that we want to look at uh, this morning. It is once again a text that is a tale that's really full of tension in Jacob's tents. And yet another story of God's covenant faithfulness and covenant kindness to his covenant family. And so to get us started though, I want to just read the first 13 verses of Genesis 31 and then pray that God would bless our study and then we will begin together. So let us hear now as God speaks to us through his word. Now Jacob heard that the sons of Laban were saying, Jacob has taken all that was our father's. And from what was our father's, he has gained all this wealth. And Jacob saw that Laban did not regard him with favor as before. The Lord said to Jacob, Return to the land of your fathers and to your kindred, and I will be with you. So Jacob sent and called Rachel and Leah into the field where his flock was and said to them, I see that your father does not regard me with favor as he did before. But the God of my father has been with me. You know that I have served your father with all my strength, and yet your father has cheated me and changed my wages ten times. But God did not permit him to harm me. If he said, the spotted shall be your wages, then all the flock bore spotted. And if he said, the striped shall be your wages, then all the flock bore striped. Thus God has taken away the livestock of your father and given them to me. In the breeding season of the flock, I lifted up my eyes and saw in a dream that the goats that mated with the flock were striped, spotted, and mottled. Then the angel of God said to me in a dream, Jacob, and I said, here I am. And he said, lift up your eyes and see. All the goats that mate with the flock are striped, spotted, and mottled, for I have seen all that Laban is doing to you. I am the God of Bethel. Where you anointed a pillar and made a vow to me, now arise, go out from this land and return to the land of your kindred. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Let's pray together. Father, we do ask that you would help us to hear your word with hearts of faith and with Souls of repentance this morning, for we know that your word contains life for us. It's perfect, it's powerful, it's living and active. And so by the Spirit, open our minds and our eyes to behold its wondrous truth. That we might look upon Jesus Christ and live. That we might see your truth and follow you fully. We do pray that you would also help me to preach as you say I must with courage and clarity. That Christ would be exalted. And we do pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. One of the best missionary biographies you could probably ever read is actually an autobiography of a 19th century Presbyterian missionary named John Patton. It was his life's ambition to take the gospel of Jesus Christ to the New Hebrides Islands in the Pacific. 
And if you ever read through his autobiography, it really is a spell-binding tale as it's full of all these incredible events, these incredible stories of God just at the right minute, saving his servants there, ministering Christ to a native people that didn't want anything to do with the Lord Jesus Christ. And one of the stories that I thought about this week from that autobiography was John Patton talking about waking up in the middle of the night one evening to noise next door. And the church was next door. And so we'll gather it around the church where a group of natives with torches in hand ready to set fire to the church building. And they were calling out to one another with this kind of a vicious, angry language, calling each other to set fire to this thing with all of a sudden a hush suddenly and simultaneously descended on the whole group because they started to hear a sound off to the south. And it was the sound that often would come in those areas of something like a hurricane or a typhoon soon to land. And in his autobiography, Patton wrote, The mighty roaring of the wind and the cloud pouring in torrents awed them into silence. Some began to withdraw from the scene. All of them lowered their weapons of war, and several, terror-struck, exclaimed, That is Jehovah's reign. Truly, their Jehovah is fighting for them and helping them. Let us get away. That is Jehovah's deliverance, is what they were saying. And I tell you that because we come to a text today in Genesis 31 that is all about Jehovah's, Yahweh's deliverance of His people. It's likewise a text that tells us God is constantly fighting for His people, even working when we don't think He is to bring about His people's deliverance from affliction, from pain, from hardship, and persecution. So kids, I hope that you know that the Bible from start to finish is very much the story of God's deliverance. You don't have to get too far into Scripture before you're going to run into a story of God's deliverance. It seems like page after page, chapter after chapter, book after book is reminding us of God's power and protection for His people. And in a way that you may not have noticed before, the book of Genesis is a story full of many exoduses. It was written, originally given to a people that had just experienced God's exodus out of bondage and slavery in Egypt. And what we see here in chapter 31 is indeed this short, compelling, altogether moving portrait of an exodus. For likewise, what we're going to find out in our text is God hears the affliction of His people, just as He did in Exodus chapter 2. A people who are living under an oppressive overlord, just as they were in the book of Exodus. And eventually this people are going to get out from under their bondage and slavery. They're going to go towards the promised land. And in going there, they're going to plunder their opponent. They're going to mock the opponent's idols. They're going to cross a river. They're going to get to a mountain. And it's on that mountain that a covenant is going to be cut. And any person originally hearing that story would think to themselves, we know exactly what this story is talking about. God's power to deliver His people. So that really is the theme of Genesis chapter 31. God delivers His blessed people. We see again God's power and provision as He's making sure that His covenant promises come to pass in the life of His chosen family. And I do hope that a number of you, even all of you, might be able to later on today share stories of God's power of deliverance in your own life. 
For so many of you know his power to deliver you from the penalty of sin. Others of you can tell stories of God's power to deliver you from pain and affliction, from sorrow and suffering. Still others might be able to regale us with stories of God's power of delivering the soul from oppression or from an opponent. And you might be in here today and you wouldn't call yourself a Christian. I do wonder then what you are hoping in, what power or person is going to deliver you from harm. And I trust that we will all see by the end of our time together this morning that there is but one power, there is but one person in all the universe that can deliver anyone. And it is the very God of Jacob that comes to speak and deliver his family today. So if you just glance down at chapter 31, depending on the size of text in your Bible, it may be a few pages long, and if you just kind of scan your eyes through, you might happen to notice quickly that it's a text that mostly hinges on monologues, on speeches, on long discourses from either Jacob or Laban. There's actually four distinct speeches that separate the text. But in order to help us understand God's power of deliverance, I just want to walk through it under two headings. First of all, in the first 21 verses, deliverance from affliction. So we're going to want to see God's deliverance of Jacob's family from their affliction. And then the remainder of the text, verse 22 through the end, is God's deliverance to freedom. Because, of course, when God delivers his people, it's never just deliverance from something. It's ultimately deliverance to something. So we left off the story last week, if you were with us, at the end of Genesis chapter 30. It was a chapter that was full, once again, of God's continued promise to bless Jacob. He's now got numerous children As best we can tell, he's got 11 sons and one daughter at this moment at the end of Genesis 30. He's not just wealthy with children, he's wealthy with money. He's got an immense fortune that he has received from God. If you look at the end of chapter 30 and verse 43, it tells us, Thus Jacob increased greatly and had large flocks, female servants and male servants, camels and donkeys. And as it often is, Jacob's burgeoning portfolio causes those close to him to become quite envious, even angry. And it's what precipitates his deliverance from affliction. Look at verse 1 and 2 of chapter 31 once again. Now Jacob heard that the sons of Laban were saying, Jacob has taken all that was our father's, and from what was our father's, he has gained all his wealth. And Jacob saw that Laban did not regard him with favor as before. So you'll notice in the first two verses that it's two senses that are driving Jacob to realize uh, things are not as well as they could be here in Haran, right? You notice in verse 1, he hears something. He hears that his cousins are upset that he's quite wealthy, that he's gotten not just wealthy is the problem, but wealthy off their father's back is the way that they take it. And he hasn't just heard something. You'll notice verse 2, he sees something. The more original language in the Hebrew is less that Laban did not regard him, but Laban's face was not toward him. Because, of course, if you have enjoyment with another person, your face will always be toward that person. And we know well enough, don't we, by now in the story of Genesis, that if someone is on the bad side of Laban, that is the wrong side to be on. And not just that is compelling Jacob's departure from Laban's family. is also divine revelation in verse 3. The Lord said to Jacob, Return to the land of your fathers and to your kindred, and I will be with you. So you want to notice a few things about verse 3. 
First of which, as we do see later on in verse 11 and following of this very passage, more of what actually was said to Jacob. But it's another divine revelation that comes through a dream. Now, when was the last time, students, that God spoke to Jacob in a dream? Now, you go back just a few chapters to the left, and it's chapter 28. Now, that doesn't seem that long ago, but in the course of Genesis, that's actually 20 years ago that Jacob last heard, as best we can tell, divine revelation from God. And even the very revelation he gets here sounds a lot like the revelation that his grandfather Abraham heard all the way back in Genesis 12. Go from this land down to the promised land. And once again, what we're really seeing is Jacob in, in so many ways retracing the steps of his grandfather and our father in the faith. But again, look at how verse 3 ends this central promise in God's covenant grace. I will be with you. That's what he keeps telling Jacob. You even see Jacob mentions it in verse 5. The God of my father has been with me amidst all the hardship and affliction. So all throughout the scriptures, this, this precious promise of God's presence which is not just a promise of presence, it's a presence that comes to provide and to protect. It ordinarily is mentioned to God's people. They hear its reminder when they're scared, when they're fearful, when they wonder if there will be freedom from the suffering. And I wonder maybe if you sit in here this morning and you need the reminder of God's promise of gracious presence towards you in Jesus Christ, who is God with us. Maybe there's someone even in your life this week who needs the reminder of this precious promise that you might be able to encourage with along the way in the coming days. So what follows then, if you just glance down verse 4 through really verse 13, it has an astonishing legal undertone in the Hebrew. It's as though what Jacob is getting ready to do is present his case He's giving all of the evidence he can to his wives about why they need to leave their homeland. Because you glance down at verse 4, what you see is Jacob takes his two wives, Rachel and Leah, and he takes them away from the tents, out into the field where no one can listen in. What you may have realized in previous chapters in Genesis, it always seems that someone's listening in to conversations in the tent. And so Jacob's getting away from the tents, out where no one can listen, and he's presenting really two lines of evidence. First is his rationale for leaving, and then God's revelation about leaving. You'll see verse 6 and 7 as he presents the rationale. You yourselves know that I have served your father with my strength, all my strength, yet your father has cheated me. That's actually in the Hebrew, he has fooled me, and he has changed my wages ten times. Ten times was something of a a Hebrew idiom that would almost kind of sound like today, enough is enough. Your father has only made life hard for us. He's always been about the business of trying to ruin my wages, change my wages so he can get the profit. He can diminish any of the salary that my hard work genuinely deserves. You know how bad your father is. Line of evidence number one. Line of evidence number two is what God said to Jacob. Look at verse 13. In this dream, God appears and says, I am the God of Bethel, where you anointed a pillar and made a vow to me. Now arise, go out from this land and return to the land of your kindred. Such is Jacob's evidence to his wives. Now kids, you want to think about Rachel and Leah at this moment. It's hard to know their ages, but they could be about 90 years old at this time. 
And they have spent their entire life in this homeland. That's where all their friends are. All their family is. All their comfort is. Everything they've ever known is right here. And then here comes their husband saying, it's, it's time for us to leave. So you wonder, are, are they going to be willing to leave? Now we're soon going to see that they are in fact willing, but you need to know part of the reason why they're so eager to leave. Because you need to know something about ancient forms of inheritance that certainly mark this Eastern culture. So when a man married a woman, it was expected that the man would pay a bride price for that wife. And then what the father of the bride was supposed to do is take that bride price and hold it in a kind of trust. Out of which, when the husband and wife eventually left, a dowry of sorts was supposed to be paid to the bride. Now you might remember, Jacob didn't have any money. He was penniless when he came to Laban. So he didn't have a bride price to offer. So what did he offer Laban? Seven years hard labor for Rachel. Laban tricked him, gave him Leah instead of Rachel. Says, hey, you can have Rachel too after a week. You just got to work another seven hard years. So some of that 14 years of salary, ordinarily according to the customs of the time, would have belonged in some sort of inheritance trust to be paid out to Rachel and Leah when they left the house. But look at what they say about this inheritance in verse 14 and 15. Rachel and Leah answered Jacob and say, is there any portion or inheritance left to us in our father's house? Are we not regarded by him as foreigners? He has sold us and indeed has devoured our money. The end of verse 15 in the original is something like, he has eaten and he keeps on eating our inheritance. We know how evil our father is. We have no past with him. He sold us. We have no present with him. He treats us like foreigners. We have no future with him. We have no inheritance. So yes, look at the end of verse 16. Jacob, whatever God has said to you, go ahead and do. Now if you pause right there in the narrative, what you maybe would want to see is that this is the first time in a while in Genesis that we've seen Jacob... Leah or Rachel have any sort of marked spirituality about their lives. Jacob hears this word from God and immediately he's ready to get going. Leah and Rachel seem to be able to put aside the rivalry and division to agree, yes, it's time for us to leave. But as so often is the case, they, they come, if you will, down from that spirit of that summit of spirituality and they just fall back into an old pattern of sin. We're going to see them just go right back to trickery and treachery. And maybe you know something about that pattern even in your own life. On the Lord's Day, you hear and encounter Jesus Christ through His Word and Spirit quite powerfully. And there's this new resolve to follow Christ fully, yet within, isn't it sometimes even a matter of hours, that you've just fallen back into an old pattern of sin. And you wonder, will God still care for me, protect me, and provide for me? Well, of course, continue to see in Genesis that yes, he does. If we look at verse 19 through 21, what Jacob and Rachel scheme to do. 19 tells us Laban had gone to shear his sheep. As best we can tell, that's probably meaning he's about a three days journey away from Jacob at this time. He had gone to shear his sheep and Rachel stole her father's household gods. And Jacob tricked Laban, the Aramean, by not telling him that he intended to flee. And he fled with all that he had. And he arose and crossed the Euphrates. It's actually the river in 
Hebrew, he crossed the river and he set his face toward the hill country of Gilead. Now kids, what you want to notice in verse 19 through 21 are two robberies just happened. Do you see them? One's pretty easy to see in your English translation. Rachel stole her dad's household gods. Okay, we're going to come back to those in a minute. The text actually also says in Hebrew in verse 20, Jacob stole Laban's heart. There's this wild kind of play on words that's happening in the Hebrew. It's, it's essentially saying Jacob cheated the heart of the cheater by doing what he did. So kids, we could say Jacob proves himself to be the ultimate trickster, right? He's just tricked the trickster of tricksters. Laban, as he's getting out of the land under the cover of distance, potentially even the cover of night, such as Jacob's deliverance from affliction. The game is on, is the way you want to see it in this passage. And it comes to deliverance to freedom in the remainder of the text. Now, some of you might have friends like I do that count themselves and consider themselves to be Something of a film guru. I have one of those friends who's always recommending movies that I should go see. And before we each had a number of children, it wouldn't be uncommon for him to call me up or text me and say, hey, you should come over this weekend and we'll watch this movie that I think that you would really like. And knowing my love for military history, one time he said, hey, come over to the house. I want to show you this 1963 epic called The Great Escape. Some of you might know this story. It focuses on... Actually, a true story of British prisoners of war who are trying to escape the war camp and even, in fact, do. And then after they escape from the camp, you do know at the end of the story that the oppressors come and track them back down. And as Jacob has just made his great escape from Haran, the exact same thing happens to Jacob. You see verse 25, Laban overtook Jacob. Now, kids, you're going to want to know a race was going on at that time. What the text will tell us if you kind of look through it in other parts, Jacob has been traveling for 10 days south to the land of Gilead. That means he's going to a land 350 miles south, and he's made it there in 10 days. So how fast was he going? Well, fast enough to get 35 miles a day done in a large caravan, which is a really fast speed for the time. Laban leaves three days after Jacob has already left, and Laban catches him in seven days. So hot and fast was Laban's pursuit. And Laban's response when he arrives is rather hot and bothered. If you notice verse 25 through 28, he's essentially saying with great pomp and circumstance, what is this that you have done to me? And as he is, the mob man of Mesopotamia, he throws around a threat of strength, verse 29 and 30. Look at what he says. It's in my power, Jacob, to do you harm. But The God of your father spoke to me last night saying, be careful not to say anything to Jacob, either good or bad. Ironically enough, God has said, don't speak to Jacob. And here is Laban. The first thing he does when he arrives is speak to Jacob. And the real crux of Laban's conflict at this time is what comes at the end of verse 30. He says, why did you steal my God's? So you got to know something also about these teraphim, as they were called, these household gods. They would certainly be no larger than 12 inches, sometimes as small as 6 inches. They tended to be images of either your ancestors 
or gods of your ancestors. They were believed to provide guidance. They were believed to provide protection. They were believed to really provide for your needs. But significantly, according to the law of that time, whoever was in possession of the household gods had the title to the inheritance. So it's hard to know. It may not be true, but it certainly seems like in the reading of the passage, Rachel has gone and stolen the teraphim because what? She says, we have no inheritance in this family, so I'm going to steal, as it were, the deed to the inheritance. Laban wants them back. Jacob makes a rash vow. Notice verse 32. Certainly an ignorant vow. Anyone with whom Laban you find your gods shall not live. In the presence of our kinsmen, point out what I have that is yours and take it. Now Jacob did not know that Rachel had stolen them. So the tale is woven in such a way to amplify the tension. Yeah, is Jacob going to get away? No, Laban catches up to him. And now Jacob makes this vow of capital punishment on anyone in my tents that has your gods, Laban, not knowing that actually it's his most beloved wife, Rachel, who is sitting on him at that very moment. And so Laban begins to search. Now imagine hearing this for the first time as a young Hebrew child making your way to the promised land, and here goes Uncle Laban, this power broker from Haran, and he's looking for the gods. You know where they are. He goes into Jacob's tent. He doesn't find anything. He goes into Leah's tent. Doesn't find anything there either. Then he goes into Zilpah's tent. Doesn't find anything in there. Then he goes into Bilhah's tent and doesn't find anything there. And then finally he crosses the threshold into Rachel's tent where we know the gods are. And we know if Laban finds them there, Jacob is oath-bound to execute his wife. That's genuine tension. And look at what Rachel says to her father when he arrives in verse 35. Let not my Lord be angry that I cannot rise up before you, for the way of women is upon me. So he searched but did not find the household gods. And again, it's always hard to know like how the original audience would hear these things. But based on the rest of the New Testament and how the Israelites would have understood spiritual humor, I think it's actually quite likely when they got to verse 35, there would be this side-stitching laughter that would erupt from God's people if you realize exactly what's happened. Because so often when the Bible talks about idols, false gods, it does so with the most blistering mockery. Now, she says she's in the way of women. We don't know if she is or she isn't. But we know, according to biblical law and even ancient customs, to be in the way of women at that time was mean anything you came in contact with was unclean. So do you see the mocking irony of these false gods? One, they can't save themselves from being stolen. Two, they can't speak up to be found when their servant is in the very room. And then even that, they are immediately made unclean through Rachel, then isn't it often that way with our household gods? The defender and deliverer of Jacob just mocks them as utterly incapable of doing anything to protect or provide. And maybe that kind of confrontation is really what you need to see about a cherished God within your own heart. That it is utterly unable to meet you where you think your great needs are, just as Laban's are. So look at what happens in verse 36. Jacob becomes angry. Such a strong word, isn't it? And he berated Laban. 
And if you just kind of glance through, again, it's got this legal tone. He's saying in verse 36, 37, and 38, essentially, I'm calling for arbitration, a decision, a legal matter to be decided between the two of us. You haven't found anything. I haven't done anything wrong. You've done all of this wrong. Decide between you and me who actually is in the right, your family and my family. Well, we know if you just kind of scan your way through the text that Laban certainly realizes by the time we get to verse 43, he has no ability to bring a charge to Jacob. He can't make a charge. He can't do anything to get anything back from Jacob. So instead of making a charge, he wants to make a covenant. Look at the end of verse 43 into verse 44. Laban says, What can I do this day for these my daughters or for their children whom they have borne? Come now, let us make a covenant, you and I. And you want to understand this covenant is really something like a non-aggression pact. He can't get Jacob back. He can't get all of that hard labor that's brought him so much wealth back. But he can ensure that there's going to be peace when facing Jacob's mighty hoard of prosperity. So if you just kind of glance through the next few verses, they begin to gather stones. They make up a pillar. They make a memorial as they cut this covenant. There's a sacrifice that they offer in order to confirm the covenant. They have a meal as the text continues. And it concludes, you'll see, as the next morning, verse 55, Laban arose early. He kissed his grandchildren and his daughters and blessed them. And then Laban departed and returned home. So I do hope you see it. God has delivered Jacob from affliction. God is delivering Jacob to freedom because God always delivers his blessed people. I don't know about your neighborhoods, but it's been kind of interesting, certainly in recent months, ever since a quarantine first was called for, to watch how families in the area just passed all the extra hours at home. And maybe your neighborhood's like mine is, and no small number of families took the sidewalk chalk and all kinds of creative things that you can do with those. And the, the normal trail that I run on with my children virtually every afternoon goes behind this uh, neighborhood that is nearby. And a couple families in that neighborhood clearly had taken it upon themselves once the shutdown happened is to gather like all of the stones and rocks near the creek and they just began to paint on them. And they would paint pictures that were supposed to encourage people running along or biking along the trail. They would provide these inspirational quotes that normally had little more of a tone than, keep going, you can do it, remember that you're strong. And then they just set them along the trail. So now for miles and miles, you know, you just go and about every 20 yards or so, you run into one of these stones that's calling you to, to remember something. And in the same way, if you glance back at verse 47, They put these heap of stones together, Jacob and Laban, memorial of this covenant. And they call it, at least in verse 47, a different name. But it's just, it's the same word, or it's the same meaning in just different languages. That means heap of witness. In other words, when anyone sees these stones, it's a heap of witness to the covenant that we have agreed to. This covenant of peace, this covenant of of God's deliverance of his chosen family. So what I want to do as we begin to close is maybe ask the question, what stone-like heap of witness are we meant to see about this deliverer who is named Yahweh? And I think that there are obviously many things that we could say, but I just want to impress two upon your souls this morning as we conclude these stone-like truths. I do think that God wants us to see in their beauty and glory. The first of which is, the deliverer deserves your fear. 
the deliverer deserves your fear. Look back at verse 42. That's the end, if you will, of Jacob's legal-like soliloquy to Laban. And he says, If the God of my father, the God of Abraham, and the fear of Isaac had not been on my side, surely now you would have sent me away empty-handed. God saw my affliction and the labor of my hands, and he rebuked you last night. Skip down to the end of verse 53. We're told by the narrator, Jacob swore by the fear, capital F, the fear of his father Isaac. These are the only times in all the Bible that Yahweh is referred to as the fear of Isaac. You could almost call it the most unused title and name of God in all of Scripture. You could translate it like the dread of Isaac, the awe of Isaac. Students, if you wanted to put more in our popular language today, a simple way you could call it is Isaac's intimidator. That's who Yahweh is. And if you haven't ever understood how true that is about Yahweh's character, you need to reckon with it today because he does deserve your fear. I do hope that many of you might know how you can have these trust-filled experiences and encounters with God that seem to do little more than cause you to fall down, if not physically, certainly spiritually, in fear before this God. So great and glorious He is. And you could be in here today and you wouldn't say that you're following Jesus Christ in faith. Therefore, you don't fear the fear of Isaac at all. But what you need to know is a time is coming when every single human being will stand in fear before this God. I just want to encourage you not to do that before it's too late. Because you can fear Him today in truth, love, and trust, faith, and repentance. Or you can stand before him at the last day, that time of final judgment, and you will no doubt stand in fear as you hear his sentence unto eternal judgment. Isaac's intimidator who protects and delivers his people. So the deliverer, number one, deserves your fear. Number two, the deliverer provides a future. Because glance back through the text and see how important this word of harm is. He's been delivered from affliction, Jacob has. Look at verse 7. After talking about enough is enough with Laban, he says, God did not permit Laban to harm me. Laban shows up in verse 29 and says, it's in my power to harm you, but your God wouldn't let me do it. And then they cut a covenant, which verse 52 as it ends tells us is there so that there will be no harm done, largely in part to the chosen covenant people. So again, what person, what power is going to protect you from harm? Certainly, I hope you know that there is only one person or power that could ever protect you from harm, suffering, sorrow, and affliction. There's only one person or power that could ever protect you and deliver you from your life's truest enemies, sin, Satan, and death. And that, of course, is none other than the true offspring of Jacob named Jesus Christ. Because as he talked to his disciples, often in his ministry, he would use language of deliverance, don't you know? As he would say to his disciples, warning them about what was ready to come, what was about to come, he would say to them, the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise again. He must be delivered to death so that you might be delivered to life. 
That's the good news of Jacob's ultimate offspring, Jesus Christ. That's the way that God continues to deliver His blessed people today through His Son, who is delivered over to life's greatest enemies, that you might be delivered over to life's greatest joys. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your delivering power, your continued kindness and covenant steadfast faithfulness in your promise and in your promised Son. We do confess that we are prone to wander, we are prone to go astray, but thankful that you cling close to us by your word and spirit that we might indeed remember that you have not only delivered us from sin, Satan, and death, but you continue to deliver us and bring us safely into the eternal promised land, the new heavens and the new earth. Give us this day renewed fear in you, renewed faith in your Son, that we might abound in joy. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.